Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Halper. I'm the other host, Aaron Mate. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. I just got back from Yale University where I had a really interesting time. Uh, I was invited to take part in this debate by the Yale Political Union and the um, motion on the floor was whether or not to absolve the military industrial complex. I gave absolve a very- it? Absolve it? Like- Oh, sorry. Not to absolve. No, to abolish. 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 Okay. abolish. But and so I give a very spirited case for why we should abolish the military industrial complex. I talked about Yemen, obviously what's going now with Ukraine, the deprivation of people here at home, all this money going into the Pentagon while not providing people with health care. But I have bad news, everybody. Our future overlords who are now studying at Yale voted overwhelmingly, or not overwhelmingly, voted narrowly to defeat my proposal. And so the military industrial complex will have to remain. I'm sorry to report. I did my best. Uh, I have my hopes up. I thought yeah. maybe we're going to get rid of it this week. Yeah. So it's yeah. you debating all, like you're there's a debate or how does it work? This is like, this is a debate club where and they have all it's really interesting. I never I hadn't been to like a formal debate since I was a kid. You know, they have all these different political parties and everyone has their own group that they're a part of and people debate for and against the motion and they invite a speaker to come argue one way or the other. And I did my best, but I lost. It was, an, it was a close vote. We almost squeaked it through, but the military industrial complex prevailed. Who knows what kind of lobbying they did behind closed doors. That's true. And reaching That's out true. to the alleys. Yeah. Raytheon probably slipped some, some of the students. Uh, you know, some skull yeah. and bone shit went down. Yeah. No, no. But that's weird because usually debates have two people. But in this case, it's like you're just one position and they vote yay or nay against one position. Yes, but the the students themselves also prepared speeches, too. And on then, both sides of it? On all sides. Oh, yes. But I enjoyed it. You know, it's cool to see the youth of today debating the important issues of our time and people respectfully engaging with people who they don't agree with. And I hope that... Uh, our future overlords from Yale and other Ivy League schools will remember that there are some people out there who don't support the military industrial right. complex when they funnel it with billions of dollars and more money in the in future generations. What did it feel like to have people respond to you in ways that did not include calling you a Putinist? Well, it's cool. You know, I wasn't used to this, but a, a tr like a, the the decorum at these things is if, if you disagree with what someone says, they hiss you. They go. So wow. throughout the thing, and I wasn't prepared for that. So I was talking, I was, you know, saying, you know, uh, NATO expansion, Yemen, yeah, and, and then I would get. <laughs> wow. It's kind of Britishy. But if people agree too, then they, then they bang. So I got some bangs. Wow. Yeah. But no one was like, you Putinists. Not to my face. No. Right. Not to your face. Maybe yeah. someone had that thought. You never know. Right. They're, but... Maybe they're passing out notes. Yeah. 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 No. And, and everyone's very respectful. The, the youth were far more respectful than many of the people much older than them who I engage with every right. single day. So well, shout out to the youth. Shout out Yale. to the youth. Well, I did something um, also kind of historic, which is I went to the movies for the first time post pandemic. Nice. Yeah. I saw nice. Belfast. Okay. Which was re-released because it's up for an Oscar, I guess. Uh -huh. Belfast is a black and white, mostly black and white movie. It's by Kenneth Branagh. It's largely uh, autobiographical about growing up in Belfast. I really liked it. I was very moved by it. I got teary eyed. I didn't full. I didn't emit any tears. No tears passed through, but I was emotional. Actually, our guest today, maybe speaking of debates, uh, I happen to know I texted one of our guests today. 
one of today's guests and I texted him I was going to while I while I was booking him I texted him I was going to see Belfast he found it boring I found it slow and uh but gratifying and kind of beautifully paced and the boy the, the main character the Kenneth Branagh as a little kid was so cute and I do wonder if maybe your appreciation or enjoyment of the movie depends on how much you like little kids so just just a thought but I liked it a lot very good looking parents whenever I see these things though I want to know exactly what's true like what exact things are true versus made up so Kenneth Branagh we know you're watching come on the show yeah, let's talk Belfast. Yeah, let's talk Belfast, yeah. What was it like being in a movie theater? Nice. You know, I didn't freak out that much. You got to wear the mask like while you're getting your concessions, walking in uh -huh. and out, not once yeah. you're sitting down. They have all these precautions they take with ventilation. Well, look, shout out to the war in Ukraine for kind of making everything normal again. COVID's over. COVID's over, yeah. We can go to movies. Yeah. You know, so that's a that's one that's silver, silver lining. lining. Yeah. yeah. So uh, should we just get into the show? We got I mean, those four the, food groups. We got those four food groups. Okay. Yeah. So this one's really yummy. Get ready for your Democrat suck of the week. We got mother, Hillary Clinton, oh. appearing on, trigger warning everyone, appearing on uh, Rachel Maddow. Let's take a look, uh, take a listen to what Hillary had to say. But remember, uh, the Russians invaded Afghanistan uh, back uh, in 1980. And uh, although no country uh, went in, uh, they certainly had a lot of countries uh, supplying uh, arms and advice and even some advisors uh, to those who were recruited to fight Russia. It didn't end well for the Russians. Uh, there were other uh, unintended consequences, as we know, but the fact is that a very motivated and then uh, funded and armed uh, insurgency uh, basically drove the Russians out of Afghanistan. Um, obviously, the similarities are, are not uh, ones that you should uh, bank on because uh, the terrain, the development uh, in urban areas, et cetera, is so different. But I think that is the model that people are now uh, looking toward. And if there can be sufficient uh, armaments that get in, and they should be able to get in along some of uh, uh, the borders uh, between other nations and Ukraine, uh, and keep the Ukrainian, uh, both their military and their citizen uh, volunteer soldiers supplied, uh, that can continue to stymie Russia. Now, let's be you know, clear that Russia has overwhelming uh, military force. Uh, but of course, they did in Afghanistan as well. Mm. Uh, they also brought a lot of uh, air power to Syria. It has it took years to finally uh, defeat Syria. Uh, in terms of the insurgencies, the democratic forces, as well as others who battled the Russians, the Syrians and the Iranians. Um, so if you're fighting for your homeland, you're fighting for your family, you're fighting for your ideals, that's far more powerful than sending in these poor young Russian soldiers who didn't even know where they were going until they crossed the border and People were screaming at them and they realized they were in Ukraine. So I, I think we have to watch this carefully. We have to provide sufficient uh, military armaments for the Ukraine uh, military and volunteers. And we have to keep tightening the screws. 
a lot to unpack here. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for, for sitting through that if you're still watching. But it's un incredible because what Hillary Clinton is basically doing there is making the argument for uh, why we should be arming Ukraine. Uh, and and her, her reference for that is uh, what happened with uh, Afghanistan and how we uh, helped uh, arm uh, Afghanistan or the Mujahideen, more specifically, against Jahideen, yeah. uh, Russia. And uh, as she said, it didn't go well for Russians. But, you know, Aaron, can you think of other people it didn't go well for? Well, that's the crazy part. Do you notice when she says there were other unintended yes. consequences? And she kind of laughs. She smiles when she says that. Yeah. So now she's what, laughing what is, about what is that unintended consequence? She's laughing about the unintended consequence of basically the people we armed in Afghanistan turning into Al Qaeda right. and carrying out 9-11. Yes, right. That was just one of the unintended consequences. And she laughs. She laughs, she chuckles at that. Do you think maybe her conscience, that's the sound of her conscience trying to get out? Because remember she said about Gaddafi. Uh, we came, we, we, what was it? We came, uh, we, he died. We came, we came, we saw he died. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's actually, I mean, it, it could be ghoulishness. I'm going to go with 90% of me thinks it's ghoulishness, but there's part of me. What if that's just a physical, like um, automatic reaction where part of her, there's this, this moral compass in her that's been so buried and then it pops up i'm really mixing my metaphors here but maybe it's a a, a gurgling of conscience moral, moral compass ghoulishness i'm gonna go with ghoulishness right, i'm gonna yeah. give it the full 100 percent. yeah, yeah. in the 100%. spirit of the great yale debate you considered both decisions both yes. positions and you went with that one yeah absolutely but it's just stunning like you it is one of those moments it reminds me of sometimes i'll say who said it chomsky or trump where they would say the same things, but with totally different takeaways, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. like Trump is like, of course, we're not going to do anything about Khashoggi because mm -hmm. uh, Saudi Arabia just bought a ton of arms from us. And it's like the type of thing that Chomsky would say, but in a critical way, he would be condemning, right? Like the US, we're not doing anything about it. And Trump celebrates it. Again, this is the argument that people make against arming Ukraine. But she somehow is seeing the teachable moment or the takeaway from this that we should do that. It's nuts. She's a 9-11 truther in a different way. The complete disregard also for Ukrainian lives were basically oh, yeah, that too, you'd right. rather turn them into cannon fodder, right. destroy their country. And by the way, when you arm an insurgency, it doesn't go to like, you know, cookie chefs and right. dentists. Moderate rebels. Moderate rebels. It goes to the most extreme elements of your society. And in Ukraine, just like in Syria and Afghanistan, that is far-right militias, including the Azov Battalion. That's who Hillary Clinton wants to arm. Knowing, and everyone knows that no matter how many weapons the U.S. pours in, again, just putting aside the morality of it all, sure. just right. like tactically, we all know that Russia has overwhelming military supremacy inside Ukraine and is much more advantageous than they were in Afghanistan because Russia is right there and they can supply them their forces right. very easily. So you're basically trying to condemn millions of Ukrainians or tens of thousands, hundred thousands of Ukrainians to die and suffer for what? All because right. you want to keep open the possibility of having a NATO proxy on, on Russia's borders. It's so, this is the, the sad part is Ukrainians, while the U.S. claims to pretend about their sovereignty and defend them, they're being used as a pawn in a proxy yeah. war with Russia. And it's so, well, the callousness, it's so it, yeah. and she mentioned Syria too. She talks about how it took a long time for Russia and Syria to defeat the rebels. She talks about 
arming Democrats and others. By others, she means Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda dominated the insurgency in Syria as well. And that's why Jake Sullivan wrote to Hillary Clinton 10 years ago, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And so she wants to repeat the same thing in Ukraine. Just so callous and so criminal. But yet that is that is the bipartisan consensus right now in Washington. She's expressing something that is totally, there's no disagreement across the spectrum. And no opposition, by the way, at least that I'm seeing from progressives in Congress. And hopefully seeing it made plain like that will will spark them to act and say something. Yeah, I mean, what makes what what I find so interesting is that you could absolutely like be totally on Ukraine side, have no empathy. Um, I don't want to say empathy, not at all care or even concede that the actions of the United States and NATO had anything to do with Putin. And you could still think that arming Ukraine is a bad idea if you only cared about Ukrainians, because, as you said, they're not going to be able to be armed out of this conflict. Right. They're not going to arm themselves uh, into defeating Russia. So that's what I'm kind of think. I really think this is a major part or task for the left right now is to make that point and to reach people Mm -hmm. who don't necessarily agree with us in in terms of the role of NATO in the United States, but just showing them that this is not good for Ukrainians. No, and look at Afghanistan. And by the way, in Afghanistan, why were why was the Soviet Union even there and why did they bleed so much? Well, the Carter administration set a trap for them. That was the plan executed by one of Carter's top aides, uh, Brzezinski. He talked right. about it later on. Father he bragged about America. it later on. And he said, and he said that it was worth it because even though Afghanistan created some what he called some riled up Arabs or riled up Muslims, something like that. He said it was worth it because it helped defeat the Soviet empire, which by the way was collapsing anyway. So the the premise of his claim wasn't even true, but, and that's what they want to repeat again now in Ukraine, use Ukraine as essentially cannon fodder to bleed Russia and uh, to the, to the disaster foremost of Ukrainians, nobody else. Right. And of course, um, Mika Brzezinski is the daughter is the spawn of, uh, of that guy, of that morning, Brzezinski. Joe. Yeah, that's morning, right. Joe. So mm-hmm. another example of the kind of disgusting uh, and mesh relationship between uh, our national security state and the media. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's our Democrats suck. Democrats suck. Well, geez, that's tough to beat. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. We're going to recycle something we played on Monday morning only because it's just, I've never seen a bigger example ever of Republicans suck. This is this is this is peak Republicans suck. Yeah. You cannot top this. Really and it was on set on Fox News. And, and we'll turn later to uh, to further punishment for what the Russians have or, already done. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I, I, I agree. it is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's Annalisa Rice, co-architect of the Iraq war, says that invading a sovereign nation is a supreme violation of international law. 
and there should be sanctions against the people who did it. So let's sanction Condi and everybody else in the U.S. government. By the way, Joe Biden, too, who voted for it because they are the supreme violators of international law. The hypocrisy in this country is just off the charts, off the charts. Yes. Uh, I mean, again, Condi Rice, maybe I'm going to go. Let's just consider this possibility. Is that her conscience gurgling up and saying, throw me into the throw me into the Hague <laughs> for what I did? I'm again going to go with ghoul. I'm going right, to go right. with the ghouls the, went out again. Yeah. The hubris of ghouls, the hubris of ghouls, the yeah. lack of the impunity uh, yes. with which uh, the impunity with which these people operate, uh, which allows them to say out loud that what they themselves did is criminal without exactly. having to 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 um, reconcile how they're saying that without punishing themselves. Exactly right. So, all right. So you got right. isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? Yeah. This is just a moment from last night's State of the Union, which I did watch with um, Brianna Joy Gray, D Daniel Bessner and Leslie Lee. So you can check that out on the Katie Helper show. We did a live stream and drinking game to that. Um, but this was an interesting moment where we saw a, a let's just let's just go to the clip and we'll have to describe what it looks like for people uh, who are who are just listening. And our troops in Iraq have faced in Afghanistan have faced many dangers, one being stationed at bases, breathing in toxic smoke from burn pits. <laughs> many of you have been there. So while he when he says that what we see is so right there pause it please right as he says breathing and toxic smoke from burn pits we see nancy kind of doing this almost like um 1990s dance move where she's kind of like moving her she has her hands and are, are in fists and she's kind of doing a like circling circling her her fists around and around she's getting excited then she gets up and she does this thing where she actually rubs her fists together She's really excited about the smiling. Okay, I don't. So there's so much happening here. The movement itself is weird. The fact that she's doing it while he's talking about um, our armed services inhaling toxic smoke from burn pits, like she looks excited by that. It's also something about the move. It looks like a stereotype for, that hasn't yet been invented, and I'm not sure for what. But it looks like it's such a weird, ghoulish, fiendish move. It looks like it's a stereotype, but I don't know what. It's just, it's just a weird, I think it, it's a pretty good pick for, isn't that weird? What do you think, That's Aaron? Weird. It's a very weird sight. It's just it's a so very, weird. very weird sight. Yeah. The move is weird. The timing is weird. The, the facial expression, the, the facial expression is very yeah. weird. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. So that's yeah. my, isn't that weird? Well, that is weird. That is certified weird. All right. For isn't that what terrible? Isn't that terrible? Yeah. What do we got? Ugh. Drunk ex-girlfriend accused of tossing ex's pug from seventh floor balcony. This is really, really terrible. I hate what I have. Isn't that terrible? Because it always really is terrible. Terrible, right. And I hate it. <laughs> I know. A Florida woman angry with her ex-boyfriend is accused of taking it out on one of his most prized possessions, his three-year-old pug. An allegedly drunk, Shelly Nicole Vaughn, 46, refused to leave her ex Eric Addison's home in Clearwater on Sunday after an argument, Adelson's lawyers told WFLA. She later threw Adelson's cell phone keys in his pug Bucky from the seventh floor apartment before hitting Addison herself, police said, with multiple residents witnessing the dog's fatal plummet. Vaughn was arrested Monday and charged with aggravated animal cruelty, criminal mischief, and domestic battery. 
Addison has also filed a restraining order against Vaughn. I'm devastated. He said it's like a blur. Of course, she's from fucking Florida. That shit always happens. It's always Florida or Texas where stuff like that happens. I'm sorry to generalize, but it's true. Well, what what I also find is such a generalized thing is that the, the pug's name is Bucky. If you were to like come up with like a generic pug name, Bucky would be like so cute. the top five. You know, and it, it does conjure cuteness. So that is it's terrible. It's so R.I.P. Bucky. R.I.P. Bucky. And I hope you didn't suffer, and that's just terrible. I don't terrible. think he suffered, right? No, I don't think it, it was no. instant. Yeah, and he so didn't was, know what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. She should have hit him for. I wish she'd. I'm sure the owner would have. Eric would have just taken being like hospitalized himself instead of Bucky suffering at all. Yes, I mean, I don't think he would have taken maybe being thrown out a seven floor window. No, no, no. But but that probably would have been harder. A couple of punches. Yeah, he would have taken punches for Bucky. He would have. That would be so traumatizing and traumatic. Before having a dog, I didn't really get. I mean, obviously, before having a dog, I would have thought this was terrible, but Mm. terrible in a way that you don't get pre-dog absolutely post-dog it's just absolutely. so terrible i was the dog owner once and uh i certainly was changed afterwards it's yeah. there there it's you know so anyway solidarity with all dog owners out there everywhere yeah. right, i hope she you know I, I hope that this perpetrator here will be able to reflect on and and try to atone for what yeah. she did because it's, it's awful that's really awful she should sponsor a bunch of dogs in the aspca or something that's a great that'd be great that'd be great anyway, yeah yeah, restorative justice. Yeah, yeah. It's the only way you can honor Bucky's memory. Yes. That yes. poor guy. I hope he gets a, a. He he needs to get another dog to 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 tend to. Yeah. You think it looked like this? Oh my oh, god! Guess what? what? Now this is happening. <gasps> Excuse me. What is this? Excuse me. What are you doing? What is this, Matt? What is that? Anchorman. Anchorman. Yeah. I don't remember that scene, but with he, really, I probably he cuts off Jack, Jack, so he punts his dog. Does and the survive? dog's okay though, right? Yeah, and he yeah, saves the day okay. at the end. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's really funny, I'm not kidding, is when you showed that, I thought you were saying, did you think he looked like this? That you were saying that, was that Jack Black? Yeah. It didn't look like Jack Black, it was? It's Jack Black and Will Ferrell. I thought you were saying, did the pug look like him? <laughs> he does look a little bit like a and pug. And he did look a little bit like a pug, yeah. <laughs> so those are, our, those are our terribles, those are our weirds. Democrats suck and Republicans suck. We are so excited to bring on uh, today's guests. They are Daniel Bessner, who is the Joff Hanauer Associate Professor in Western Civilization at the University of Washington. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute, which I really recommend checking out the Quincy Institute and following them on Twitter, and a contributing editor at Jacobin. Uh, we're also bringing on to the show Derek Davison, who uh, is the founder of Foreign Exchanges, the Substack newsletter, and these two gents co-host the excellent podcast, the American Prestige Podcast. Welcome, Derek and Daniel. So excited to have you on. Uh, You are gracing us with the the prestige of the American Prestige Podcast. So welcome to the show. Thank you. That's the American Prestige Promise. We bring it with us everywhere we go. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you to Prestige Heads, who I'm sure are coming to the show, who are reaching, who may otherwise not be useful uh, idiots listeners. So thanks to everyone listening, watching. Let's just talk about Russia, Ukraine. Um, I have a specific question, but I'll save that. Uh, tell us what the, the latest uh, news is, which will be, of course, obsolete by the time we release this, but uh, <laughs> might as well just go through the yeah. questions, right? 
Um, the podcast medium is not good for this right. kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah. Um, as but here of, we are. <laughs> and yet, we yeah. are here at uh, uh, almost quarter after 5 p.m. on uh, March 2nd. Uh, it is uh, right now it looks like it's sort of a tale of two conflicts, I think. In the north, around Kiev and and Kharkiv and and uh, the cities there, it looks like the Russians are basically moving toward more of a siege mentality surrounding those cities, uh, standing off and using artillery. Kharkiv was, I think, especially hard hit uh, overnight and and into Wednesday. Kiev, not so much, but that's I think there's still the Russians are still moving more assets in uh, to surround that city. Uh, in the south, um, and and this is you know why I think uh, some of the crowing um, you may have seen on social media about you know the Russians face planning here is is misguided. Uh, the Russians have steadily advanced out of Crimea. Uh, they are in control now of the city of Kherson, uh, which is uh, kind of south, maybe a little bit southwest uh, Ukraine, and they are uh, they've surrounded the city of Mariupol. Uh, and are essentially besieging that city at this point. Uh, to and and I would imagine that's that's going to uh, be in their possession fairly soon. Uh, they they look like they have opened uh, a full land bridge. They're in control of a full land bridge between Crimea and the Donbass uh, in the east. Uh, so that's I mean on the ground that's basically where things uh, are at at this point. Something. I I wanted to ask you guys about and I and um, Daniel, you kind of posed this question to Derek during one of your Ukraine explain episodes. And uh, Aaron and I were talking about this issue earlier. And I think it really is like the task at hand for the left personally. But the uh, the question of what should be done in terms of arming Ukraine. And you guys spoke kind of honestly about how it's an awkward thing to discuss in some ways. And it winds up being a kind of paternalistic discussion because it's like for me, at least it's what's in the best par- part of this uh, calculation is what's in the best interest for Ukrainians. And of course, you have Ukrainians who are arguing or or asking for uh, arms. But something I was thinking is like, of course, it's going to be a paternalistic discussion if we're United States citizens talking about what our government's going to be doing, right? Because the gov- our government is arming another country. Yeah. And I feel and, like we and- just need to like own that. Yeah, and we live in the hegemon. I mean, I think the first thing to do before you even begin a conversation is just to identify that there are different subjective positions from which one is able to speak. We all have different identities and we all choose at different moments which one to emphasize. So myself, for example, I'm an American um, and I'm also, I'd like to consider ideologically a kind of internationalist that I think, I'm I'm a humanist. I think all lives are like philosophically equal, Um, but I exist within a framework of the uh, American nation state and I live in this country, benefit from its privileges and, and have more of a voice here Um, and also just the reality that there's not an international left-wing movement able to do something like uh, really affect geopolitics. So um, I think uh, you see a lot of discussion about what a left position should be that assumes a leftist internationalism that I just don't think I, I don't see it right now. I don't think it currently exists. That would be ideal, you know, if there was sort of a group to speak in that way, but I don't see it. So I'm primarily speaking as an American citizen. Um, and if in an that regard- a left-wing group could organize a meeting, that would be a huge achievement. Just having yeah, a meeting would be a major yeah. accomplishment for the right. international yeah. left. 
Yeah. Yeah, and 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 a, an international a meeting that had like some sort of legitimacy that yeah. wasn't just a bunch of professors, yeah. right? Yeah. Meeting a meeting that would be connected to like domestic movements that existed within a nation state and could speak. Yeah. That is so far from the reality that we exist in that I kind of just push that to the side. Then I'm really what am I speaking? I'm speaking as a guy in the United States who's a professor of IR who speaks to primarily to other Americans. And from then I just relations. Yeah, international relations. Yeah. And so then I just literally look at history. And and to me, history is is very clear on this. Whenever the United States intervenes in conflicts abroad, it oftentimes makes things worse. Um, And I I think the data is is incontrovertible from the famous wars that we know, like Korea and Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, the intervention in Libya as well, the various interventions into Syria and to less known things like the various times the United States has tried to covertly overthrow regimes, which led to terrible domestic consequences. Um, And so really philosophically, I reject the notion that became popular in the early 20th century that any great power would have the ability to really shape international relations in a meaningful way. I just don't think history bears that out. You might have been able to believe that in 1910. I think it's very difficult to believe that in 2022. So that's why I think that, you know, the United States really shouldn't send uh, armed shipments. It's likely to prolong a conflict. It's likely to make it worse. And moreover, if one is generally an anti-imperialist, uh, then one wants to create a world in which the United States doesn't have the capabilities to decide what goes on in every world region. Because again, I think the historical record is clear on that. So I think when you're thinking medium term and long term, you can't get swept up, even though I understand it's very emotional. It's a very, it's very difficult and it's a tough situation. But each new moment that will demand American intervention, you have to resist. Otherwise, you're going to have the empire continue to exist no matter what. So it's actually in these very difficult moments that you have to take the principled position of non-interventionism. At least that's where I stand. I don't know if Derek disagrees. Um, no, I generally I agree with that. Um, I mean, I, I look at it in um, less of a long-term calculation, I think. Um, but the it's it's the same thing. I mean, I you know I understand why these requests are being made. I understand the emotional appeal. I understand the desire to do something and this is you know one of the things that you can do without you know uh going even you know even bigger like a no-fly zone or or something that would really you know uh could really turn out bad um but i also you know look at what the research says about what happens when you inject arms flows from overseas into conflicts like this and what that does for extending the conflict for uh, you know the the number of casualties that that uh, come out of that conflict, um, and and that combined with you know the more long term thinking of, of uh, you know what do we what position do we want the United States to be able to take uh, in the world puts me on the side of saying you know we shouldn't shouldn't be doing this we shouldn't be fueling uh, the conflict like this. Well, good timing for this discussion because as we're speaking, CNN is reporting that the U.S. has delivered hundreds of Stinger anti-aircraft missiles to Ukraine for the first time in recent days, including over 200 on Monday. On the ground, what will that mean for for this war? Um, it's, I mean, it's hard to say. One of the surprises that, that um, you know, has been uh, written about, I think, uh, quite a bit just in the last few days, uh, from the sort of first phase of the conflict, and I think, you know, the, the idea is, there's a lot of talk about moving into a second phase, which is the kind of siege phase where you surround these these major cities and kind of wait them out or pound them out. Um, in the initial phase of the conflict, uh, you w- might have expected the Russians 
to use their air superiority to take out Ukrainian air defenses, to take out Ukrainian uh, air assets, aircraft, drones. Uh, and that really hasn't happened. Um, so I would say uh, the Russians haven't made as effective uh, use or as much use of their air power as one might have assumed they would at the beginning of this conflict. So uh, stingers are, are going to, I mean, they, they will be a, an asset to forces on the ground and to the Ukrainian, uh, if there's an insurgency after this, for example, and, and you know, just in general, the Ukrainians, you know, uh, which are not, who are not a, a match for Russia and, and uh, their airspace, uh, th they could help even things up a little bit on the ground. But uh, it's, uh, again, it's it's been kind of a bizarre conflict so far. It, it, it You understood why anti-aircraft batteries made a, a huge difference in Afghanistan, let's say, in the 80s. Um, it's it's less clear to me that that they're going to make a huge difference here. Uh, but combined with some of the other things that the U.S. and Western countries are sending, like Javelin anti-tank missiles, I mean, there's still going to be, you know, there's still going to fuel a, a Ukrainian either defensive effort or post-conflict insurgency. And why do you think Russia didn't take out the targets that you mentioned? Is that like military incompetence? What do you attribute I, that to? Yeah, honestly, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't I know yet, right? A, Everything I've heard, yeah. More of a military strategist, I guess. I yeah. might have some some ideas here. But, uh, you know, whether it was... I, I honestly can't say whether it was... They, they just weren't as effective as they, they anticipated or if this was a conscious decision... Uh, not to claim full control of the airspace, I, I, it's it's uh, it's a mystery to me. But given the number of uh, at least alleged, I mean, you know, everything's alleged, I guess, when you you talk about this stuff. But the number of drone uh, Ukrainian drone strikes uh, against relatively slow-moving Russian columns of of vehicles and men uh, that we've seen, it it does seem like a mistake not to have kind of foreclosed on that possibility or those uh, those assets uh, from the very beginning. But I, I really don't know. Let me read you guys uh, something from a RAND study. RAND is this Pentagon-tied think tank funded by the Pentagon, if I have it correctly. 2019, they did a study, and Wilson, I have the tweet there. So this 2019 RAND study is about exploiting Russian weaknesses. And one of the areas of Russian weakness they, they identify is Ukraine. And they say this, quote, providing more U.S. military equipment and advice could lead Russia to increase its direct involvement in the conflict and the price it pays for it. Russia might respond by mounting a new offensive and seizing more Ukrainian territory. So my takeaway from this is that this study, which is all about finding Russian vulnerabilities and trying to exploit them, the question I'm left with is, well, A, are studies like this influential in the Pentagon? And is it possible that trying to draw Russia into Ukraine here by giving uh, Ukraine all these weapons over the years, $3 billion since 2014, approximately, if that was a U.S. goal? That's a really great question. And speaking of RAND, um, actually, in my first book, I, I write about the origins of RAND and how it came to be. And I, I've been deep in their archives. Um, so uh, I, I think the question you asked, Aaron, is like the central question of intellectual history. You know, uh, do ideas or do reports from emanating from these think tanks actually come to inform U.S. foreign policy? Um, and the answer is 
in some cases yes and in some cases no and i think the 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 sort of directions of influence are very difficult to um game out particularly when you're doing like contemporary analysis like did that report affect things so what could it be did that literal report it was probably sent to many um, departments within the government. Didn't anyone read it? I don't know. I'd have to look in. Uh, you know, maybe someone glanced at it and threw it in the trash. Maybe someone took copious notes on it. Um, so that's one measure of influence. Maybe these two guys got drunk at the whatever Munich security conference, and one of the authors told him their great idea that's expressed in the Rand report. So there's also these sorts of informal influences. You know, they hang out over dinner. They're at a soccer practice because their kids go. To, so there's also informal mechanisms like that, which aren't written into the historical record. Um, so I think it's very difficult to know. And I would just caution against um, sort of um, uh, some, what I would call sort of simplistic causal thinking where report written, then policy made. Just in actual historical time, things don't work that way. People have different motivations. People have different forces playing on them. You know, maybe someone had a bad breakfast and they ignored the report. Maybe someone's looking to get promoted and they really emphasize the report. So we'd have to really get into the archives and really sort of see what happened there. So that's difficult to know. I do not, I don't know, Derek, what you think. I, I think that the United States basically adopted a policy toward Ukraine similar to one that it adopted toward Taiwan, which is strategic ambiguity. You know that they rhetorically said Ukraine, you'll 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 join NATO one day, but who knows when that'll be? And they've never made any moves toward it. Um, while at the same time writing reports like this that really looked into Russian vulnerabilities, I would imagine in terms of whether this was U.S. policy depends where you look in the U.S. state and depends who you're looking at because the state is such a complex, as you well know, it's such a complicated structure that I don't think you could talk about it like it's a unitary actor. You know, like. I think some elements of the state probably wanted to have an outright conflict with Russia and some elements of the state didn't want to have it. And some elements of the state, probably people who are actually political officials who feel like they have in some sense to talk to a constituency, wanted this sort of ambiguous position where like the hawks have something they could find and the doves have something, quote unquote, doves have something they could find. So um, I, I, that's where I think I am right now on U.S. foreign policy as a whole, personally. It's I mean, it's a scenario that that fits a lot of the the established facts since let's say 2008 when uh nato first made these promises to ukraine and georgia that they would be guaranteed membership uh it explains uh why you know why the united states has continued to dangle nato membership uh why maybe there was some encouragement to the you know the ukrainians not to settle the the conflict in the donbass and just sort of string this along maybe because you know you're you're prepared to uh sacrifice ukraine in a sense sacrifice ukrainians certainly uh to draw russia into a conflict so you can turn around and uh you know hit them with these very devastating sanctions and and cripple their economy and and you know sort of lure them into something i don't i don't think that um, I, I think Danny's right that if that if that's a, a motivation, it's a motivation of some part of the U.S. state. I don't think it it, it explains the entirety of uh, what's gone on since let's say 2014, um, and I don't think it uh, absolves uh, you know absolves Russia of the you know having gone in and, and made the decision to do this. Uh, but I do think it's it's you know it, it it fits a lot of what we've what's been sort of observed reality uh, over the last few years.
And just one more thing I'd like to add. I really do, you know, define the last 15 years as a moment of drift. You know, I study mostly the 1950s, and that was an era when the U.S. state had like a goal and a purpose. That would, you know, fix elections in, in, in France or Italy. It would overthrow regimes. It just seems like today that, that the, the U.S. strategic establishment like kind of wants to maintain primacy, the assumption of U.S. empire and global hegemony, but doesn't really have a project beyond that. And so I think like uh, what the more that we learn about about these very specific like state interactions, the more you see like these ambiguous positions, these uncertain moves, these sorts of like half measures, which is precisely what the uh, the NATO members the half thought out measures. And I think that we we live in, a, you know, if you are on the side of the deep state, this isn't a moment of like great great honor for them in some sense. You know, a good example of that that comes to mind for me is Georgia in two thousand eight, the Georgia Russo War, where you had Dick Cheney telling Shakasvili of Georgia, like, yeah, go ahead, do it, do it, do it, like bomb right. South Ossetia, we'll have your back. And other people in the Bush administration, including apparently George Bush himself, were like, no, we're not going to have World War III for you. And Shakasvili listened, apparently, this is according to Andrew Coburn's uh, latest book, Spells of War, Shakasvili listened to Cheney and not the rest of the Bush administration and ended up being humiliated. And there's arguments, Derek, correct me if I'm wrong, about Saddam and the first Gulf War. Right. That yeah. like Saddam thinks that he, he thought that he had the go ahead to go yeah. into Kuwait. Yeah. Uh, and so this is something. April right. Right. Yeah. right. And so like this happens all the time because the state is such a complex structure. And so like secretive and certain elements, it's very difficult, I find, to get the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, do you guys really think that there's no and it seems like I'm of, of two minds. One is like we have to try to uh, be making a case against arming Ukraine or against like basically funding these proxy wars, engaging in proxy wars. And then I'm also like, well, it didn't work when we tried to do that with Iraq. And that was actually sending people like boots on the ground. But should we not be trying to do this? Like this being like some international leftist pro-democracy? Yeah. Oh, no, I, not pro. I mean, international leftist, like anti-imperialist. Uh, right. Uh, like, I should think, we, as in the four of us, or to the extent that we, like, like the Spanish Civil War, leftists, like, like a Spanish Civil War type situation where, like, the international brigades, you know, no, fight more, against tyranny. No, more where we argue against wh what the United States is trying to do. Oh yeah, that's. I mean, that's my position, sir. Yeah, yeah. But but yeah. you were saying that there is no. I mean, there is no anti-war left move. There's no anti-war movement. But is that shouldn't we try to be building that, or am I just being totally utopian? Like, is there any role in 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 warning against doing what what the United States is trying to do? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I mean, as sort of people who have platforms, I think it's it's trying to get. I mean, I guess to to just be direct, I think my major goal in my platform is just to try to change the assumption of U.S. empire and U.S. primacy. I think like the foundational assumption of the average American who was born and raised in this country is that the United States has a right and duty to rule the world, and not only that, it's better for the American people and better for the world's peoples. So I think like that's where we're starting, and so I find myself like chipping, trying to chip away mostly at that fundamental assumption. Uh, that's what I view my like quote unquote yeah. project as mostly. What do you guys make of the consequences to the world order from this huge sanctions campaign against Russia, cutting off Russia from the global economy? What do you foresee happening? The consequences inside Russia, which is going to be massive, and then what, how Russia adapts and whether Russia can adapt. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com.
That was a great chat. Really recommend their podcast. They're very, very knowledgeable people. And I really recommend uh, the content they put out, the podcast, American Prestige and Derek's newsletter, Foreign Exchange is really, really informed insight into the world. And that's needed right now. Foreign policy is usually ignored by most Americans, but you know, this, this crisis shows how important it is and what a key role the U.S. plays around the world. So it's great to hear from some informed people. Yeah. And we will see you next week. We'll see you Monday morning at uh, youtube.com slash useful idiots. Make sure you subscribe there. Catch us live on Mondays. If you want to hear the audio only uh, of that, you can find that at our Substack. That's usefulidiots.substack.com. Uh, also, you get ad-free uh, episodes and you also get extended interviews, bonus content. So we encourage you to do that. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes. We got to beat out uh, competition like uh, PodSave and the Lincoln Project. And yeah, if you like Monday morning, if you want to support us as every week we sit through hours upon hours of insufferable Sunday news shows, you don't have to. Please support us so we can keep doing it at usefulidiots.substack.com. And thanks as always for tuning in. Yes. And thank you, Wilson. Thanks to our producer, Matt Wilson. Also on Mondays, after Monday mornings live, we do a uh, call in. So you can always check that out too, right after. That's right. Take your questions. Yeah. That's right. And we had a spirited one. Oh, yeah. This week. Yeah. And we'll probably have another spirited one next week. So yeah. hope you can join us there. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, everybody. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.